Welcome to the Cancer and Christ podcast, episode three, The Calm Before the Storm. I'm your host, Layla Ireland, and I'm going to be talking about the week after my diagnosis of stage four lung cancer, the tumor that was in my brain, and the upcoming craniotomy. Um, I would start by saying that that week home, it almost felt like I was in a daze. Like, um, you know, like when you stare at something for a really long time and, and you just kind of feel dazed. It, it was kind of like that. I was aware of everything and at the same time, um, I was aware of just the ordinary things, things that I wouldn't normally pay attention to um, because usually I'd be working or be busy and, um, you know, so much, so much chaos and so much um, had happened over the last few days that it was strange. It's almost like you're in shock. I remember the big quake in San Francisco that I was in. I think it was in 89. Um, and when there's a big catastrophe like that and people just kind of get together, everybody kind of feels like they're in a daze. You know, you're just kind of like, okay, what do we do now? And, um, you know, some big event has happened and it's not good, but... Um, you're just kind of lost in, in that moment or suspended in, in like a limbo kind of, um, my husband had told me a lot about what had happened during my seizure, uh, when I was on the bed before the ambulance came and, you know, he said I was seizing and foaming at the mouth and I didn't blink. My eyes were open. He actually thought I was dead. And um, he told me about things in the hospital that I have no recollection of. Uh, he said I was very, um, very different in that I was talking to, you know, uh, doctors and, and nurses and, and making jokes and <laughs> things that are just really not my personality. Um, I've always been a really quiet person, a very reserved um, person. And um, I don't know what painkillers or what they had me on, but apparently um, I was talking to everybody. <laughs> so, and... Those next few days afterwards, I knew that there were a lot of appointments coming up. I had one for an MRI. I had a pre-op appointment, and I also had an appointment to meet the neurosurgeon. And I knew all of those things, and it was like I, I didn't want to concentrate on them. I didn't want to think about them. I just I just was in the now. I mean... um. I remember my husband opening these shutters that we have. And one of the things I loved about um, this house is the tree outside is so massive. It's huge and it's beautiful. And if you just look up into it, it's 
it's incredible and you can hear all the birds and and it's you know offers so much shade but i remember him opening the shutters in the living room and just sitting on the couch and looking out you'd feel as though you're in a tree house and all the years that we had lived here I honestly cannot recall a time that we ever took to appreciate that. Um, just sitting on the couch with the shutters open and looking into this beautiful massive tree and, and feeling like we were sitting in a tree house. Uh, that's the only way I can describe it. It's you know, so many, so many times in our lives, I think we're searching for extraordinary moments or to do something really extraordinary. And we miss all of the ordinary things, all of the little things, all of the, you know, the things that suddenly now, you know, during this, this awful time, um, just really shine. And, um, he, he had, um, he told me that he was going to make a birdhouse, <laughs> a small birdhouse that um, he would put up in that tree so that when I looked out, I could see all the birds come to feed. And, and that was one of the wonderful things that we did during that week. Um, I sat and watched him make this incredible little birdhouse and carved out a little cross um, out of wood and, and put it on top of the birdhouse. And it's really, really beautiful. And um, went out and hung it up in the tree. And <laughs> for those days, I observed the birds and, and it was lovely. It was, it was really, really nice. Um, so back to the appointments. Um, we didn't have a lot of money during this time. Um, our car wasn't working. Um, he made a GoFundMe account. So uh, in hopes that, you know, if anybody donated, we'd be able to, you know, take Ubers to these appointments, which were out of the city that we live in. And um, one of the people that donated was my boss. And um, he was really generous. Um, I think he donated $5,000. And it was just an incredible blessing. Um, because now I wasn't working. And um, with everything going on, and it just took a big weight off of having to worry about, okay, how are we going to, you know, pay this or do that? And um, the whole transportation thing. Um so that was a real blessing. And okay, I went for my MRI, which um, the technician there was telling me that he had done all the MRIs on me um, just prior when I was admitted to the hospital, which I have no recollection of. And now that I was awake in the samurai and hearing this loud, you know, drumming noise and going through all that, I just, I can't actually imagine sleeping through it, that I had slept through it. Um, but I had the MRI and then my pre-op appointment, 
which was, that appointment was really strange because there were a lot of questions they wanted to ask about everything in preparation for the upcoming um, surgery. And I remember sitting outside this little room with my husband and suddenly we heard, we heard a woman just began crying and her crying just turned to wailing and and it was obvious that somebody that she really loved had just passed away and it was it was just so stressful and um you know you, you just felt this incredible anxiety i mean you didn't know her and you didn't know what was going on necessarily but you could just feel you know just feel the um the, the grief and the sorrow and, and at the same time knowing that I'm going in for, you know, this craniotomy um, and just trying to keep a clear head uh, was something really um, difficult. But um, I also had to meet the neurosurgeon the very next day, which to me, I was like, oh, no, do I have to go do this? You know, I just, um, I don't know. A big part of me just wanted, okay, let's just do this, get everything over with. And um, at the same time, it was, you know, I could not believe that I would have to make another trip all the way up, you know, another $60 Uber trip just to say hello to the neurosurgeon and go back home again, um, you know, just, it just didn't make sense to me um, at the time for some reason. I don't know why, but uh, I did meet her, and it was really strange because inside of the office, there's these, there was this big spine, you know, like a skeletal spine, <laughs> and um, a skull sitting on on the counter, and um, a big piece of the skull was out. And I suppose that's what they use to show patients, you know, what they're going to do and everything. But I remember when she came in, um, she said, you know, we greeted each other, and she asked me about the seizure and how I felt, and, and she said that was a a grand mild seizure and um, she looked at me and she looked at my husband and she said you know most people that come in here they have these big binders um, full of questions and things they want to ask but you guys you don't have any questions and and I remember just saying to her no I know that God wants me here and um, he's chosen you to be my surgeon and I don't have any questions. Um, I just totally, you know, I trust in the Lord. And she told me at that time that um, Dr. Forbes, the one that was in the ICU and told me um, the news about the findings in my lung and everything, she said that he said I touched his heart and that he wanted to go above and beyond to help me. And... Um, because of that, she really wanted to meet me before the surgery and not to worry because I had two of the top neurosurgeons in the world um, ready to take care of me. So 
that was really nice and comforting. And um, after that, uh, we came home and um, I was still very, I felt comforted in that I, I knew God was in control, you know, of everything. I felt he had led us everywhere. And there was, there'd be moments when I would sit and I would think, you know, if God wanted me dead, I would have been dead already. These things wouldn't be happening. The The events that had happened wouldn't, wouldn't have come about as they have, you know. Um, like I, when I said to call an ambulance, something I would never do. Um, uh, just everything. I mean, I would have just probably, you know laid on my bed, had a seizure, my husband would have never known, and I could have just died from the brain tumor, which was obviously swelling in my brain, causing those um, optical disturbances. And um, God wanted me to, um, you know, to be saved, and, and I knew this, and at the same time, um, I would think about my son's leukemia. I remember how we discovered it. It was, he had gone a whole week, I think he'd had a cold and um, a fever, and I took him into the doctor, and then he had, um, they gave him antibiotics and told me to just keep giving him the Tylenol. He was 11 years old at the time which I did, and his fever just never went down. So um, they had taken blood tests and um, went at his appointment, but nobody ever called me about anything. And it was late at night. I was really worried. I remember thinking, okay, is he like not taking his Tylenol and, you know, or something like that. Either way, I had my husband take him to the emergency room, and this was somewhere around midnight, and at two o'clock in the morning, well, my husband had come back with him and, and said, well, they just said, keep giving him Tylenol, and I was like, well, did you tell him that we've been doing that for over a week, he's had antibiotics, nothing is working, and he said yes, but they just sent him home, so two o'clock in the morning, um, we get a call, and they said that um, the blood tests show that um, he has really high amounts of um, white cells and and that basically um, he had cancer and they wanted to helicopter him to Children's Hospital that night, that morning. So it was like, Oh, oh my gosh, it was so devastating. And, and my husband at that time had said no, he would drive him there. And so by like four o'clock in the morning, um, he's going down to Oakland, to, takes my son in. And by the time he got there, one of his lungs had collapsed. The other one ha had only like an inch more of air before that was going to go. And I just could not believe how how this was happening all just all at once and um it, it was just really a devastating time um they had him immediately on um chemotherapy and 
everything that was going on with him was just, it just turned our world upside down. And, um, I mean, everything, it was so hard and so difficult and, um, so abrupt, you know, what started out as a little cold had suddenly turned into this, um, this AML cancer. And I remember being so upset and just, I'm going to sue the hospital. You know, nobody told me, how can this happen? I brought him into you and you said nothing was wrong. Give him the Tylenol. He'll be fine. But they said, that's how it happens. It's, it's acute and it can happen overnight. Um, what he had, the, the type of cancer that he had and his heart had stopped three times. Um, everything was just going really, really bad for him. I I think it was somewhere on the third or fourth day, his hair started falling out. Um, this was really devastating. And, and this whole thing, um, had happened on his 11th birthday. Um, so it just, I don't know. There was just no way to like make sense of anything that was going on at that time. And, um, it was really, really hard. Uh, he needed a bone marrow transplant. Um, they had to test, um, us, all of our children and praise Jesus. My eldest daughter was a match and, um, she, her bone marrow, um, was exactly what he needed. And, um, they removed all of his, she, and, um, I think they, they took 200, I think it was 250 times. Um, they had to remove bone marrow from her tailbone in order to, to, um, replenish his bone marrow. And, um, and then after that, they said it was like, you know, a 50-50 chance of, you know, we have to see how things are going to go. Um, the room that they kept him in, I mean, you had to be totally suited up. Everything had to be alkalized. Um, they gave him his own buzzer to, to um, administer the morphine, which really surprised me. I just couldn't imagine giving a child you know, the ability to medicate themselves. But, um, I knew that he was in a lot of pain and, uh, he'd lost all of his hair and he dwindled down to, I mean, he looked like a toddler in, in bed within a very short amount of time, um, when all of this happened. And then, um, I remember them saying that didn't look good. Um, things were really bad and he was his going downhill and uh um and this was in San Francisco in UCSF and we were living in Vallejo which is like 35 miles away and I couldn't be there all the time and I just remember you know thinking I don't want him dying uh, um, in the hospital by himself with nobody there because that's what his oncologist told me was going to happen. And um, I told them I want him home. If he's going to die, I want him to die at home. 
And they told me I would have to learn the nursing and how to do the blood draws and his Broviac care and um, all of that, if that's what I wanted to do. And I that was exactly what I wanted to do. So I think after, I think it was two weeks of um, learning that, um, how to take care of him and everything. And then they came out to the house and, and inspected to make sure everything was like top notch, super clean and um, okay for him. Uh, we brought him home and I never once during this time, I mean, I knew they were telling me that he was dying and I, I know that, you know, I felt, okay, well, if that is the case, I want him home and I'm going to take care of him myself, you know, that's my baby, I love him and uh, that's just all there is to it. But deep in my heart, I never had that feeling that he was going to actually die. I just knew that I wanted him home and I knew that he'd be better once he was. And praise Jesus, he he began to get better. And it was hard. I mean, um, I had to do his IVs and um, he was having big bags. I don't know, they felt like five pound bags of um, liquid feeding and um, all of these things I was supposed to give him. I taking blood draws, five tubes, and I would have to get in a taxi and drop it off the lab and come back. And it was hard, but he was getting better and he was getting stronger. And <laughs> praise God to this day, and he is 34 years old, um, he has survived. And I remember them telling me um, during that time when he was at home and I was taking care of him that if he did get better, that he'd only have a five-year chance of living anyway, you know, and that he would not have any, um, say, pubic hair or any, there was a good chance he wouldn't have any facial hair or, you know, and none of that's true. Um, <laughs> he's just been very healthy and very, very blessed. And um, so during this time with me, um, I kind of, you know, I would, I would reflect on what I went through with my son. I remember having this moment when I thought, oh, no, wasn't that enough? <laughs> you know, I mean, how many times would something like cancer strike in in a in a family you know without i mean skipping a couple generations or something i mean i don't know but i remember that i would i remember reflecting on on um what was going on with my son at the time i knew that um god had blessed him it was a miracle he's alive today I always tell him, you are a miracle, and um, I knew that, but I also knew that he did have to go through the chemotherapy, and he did have to go through everything that he went through, um, the, the pain, the weight loss, the vomiting, I mean, the incessant vomiting. I would have to uh, give him these giant pills, I mean, 
we had a whole closet, like a cupboard full of all the medications he was supposed to take. And they told me if he throws up within 30 minutes, he has to retake everything because, you know, he probably threw it all up. So um, I would tell him he'd be gagging and I'd be saying, if you throw up, you're going to have to take it again. So he got really good at, <laughs> at eventually at just holding everything down. And um, I knew what he went through. And I knew that it was all hard, tough stuff, you know. So I knew what they said. Um, I was going to, you know, well, I mean, nobody told me what I was going to have to go through had I chosen chemotherapy and everything. But I knew, I knew from my own son and what he went through if um if I went that route and and it's really strange I say if but I didn't I didn't um there was no question that I was going to do whatever I was supposed to do because I felt that God was leading me to um to these appointments and to the people and the places that were going to help me and um at the same time, I also knew that, okay, I'm probably going to be in for it like my son was. But I didn't have and I didn't share that attitude that um, the Dr. Lopez, the oncologist, he told me I had six months to live. I didn't share that. You know, when they tell you that, it's so, it's really weird because it's like, um, it's like they're telling you about somebody that passed away, only it's supposed to be you and what's going to happen to you. But they have that, um, I don't know how to describe it really, that really, that kind of sad seriousness about it. And I even remember when he reiterated that fact at our appointment that I was smiling um, and I was looking at my husband smiling and I could feel um, Dr. Lopez staring at me. And I know in my mind, I thought, oh, he's probably thinking, you know, what is she smiling about? I just told her she's got six months. <laughs> but I, like I said, I, I knew what was, you know, probably going to be in store for me because I was going to go to the cancer center. I knew I was going to do everything I was supposed to do. Because I, my life was in God's hands, and God puts people and um, places and, and things in our path, you know, for our own betterment. So I knew all of this, and um, I remember telling my husband, um, well, you know, we've got that, um, that Mayin GoFundMe account, so I want you to order... Um, uh, one of those toilets, uh, an electric toilet <laughs> for the bedroom because I anticipated myself vomiting profusely the way my son did. And um, I didn't want to have to go to the bathroom and somebody be in there and or hurl up, you know, vomit inside of a trash can or something. So um, it was really cool. <laughs> Um, I had prior to this, you know, um, I had experience with those little camper type toilets. They're really cool. Um, they're really small. I think it's Coleman or something like that, where, you know, you, you pump, pump it to get the water in the toilet and then you pull the little latch for like camping. 
But the toilet that he got me was, oh gosh, really nice, um, white, and um, it was about the height of a normal toilet. And I just remember marveling at it when when it came in the box, you know, the water, and it was battery run. And all you had to do was press the button, and um, the water would come around, you know, and fill the bowl or rinse the bowl. And you just had a lever to pull. And it was just so easy to flush. And I just thought, okay, this is, this is great. This is a really good buy. Um, and plus I could just throw a shawl over it or something and nobody would know, hey, you know, that's a toilet there. It looked like a night table or something. <laughs> but so I felt like I was preparing for what I felt I was going to be going through. And um, that's pretty much... Um, what had happened during that week, um, there was a moment when I was in the living room by myself and the shutters were open and I was just kneeling on the floor over a chair that's right under the window and just looking up through the branches of that tree and just thinking about God and and just focusing on God. And I know I was praying, but I honestly cannot remember what I had prayed. But what I do remember was ending that prayer and saying, thank you, Father. Thank you for choosing me. And that just really, really, really stayed with me all of this time. I mean, there are times during the day now, um, all this time later that I actually will reflect on that because whatever it was, it was like I was having a conversation with God, only um, I didn't remember it. And I don't feel he wanted me to remember it because it feels more like it was you know, of, of minds, of spirit, of, you know, like, I keep thinking to myself, what did, what did the Lord say to me that I responded, thank you, and thank you for choosing me. I mean, I, I try to imagine, but then I don't want to go there because, you know, it's just so precious on its own, and, and it's a moment that stays with me, and, and in that moment, I just felt this incredible calm and this this just a blissful blissful I can't even come up with the words to describe it just gratitude and I just knew I just knew everything was going to be fine because father our father in heaven was in control and that he chose me, and I just felt really, really at peace. Um, and that's all that had happened during those days right after my diagnosis. Um, so I will leave it there, and I hope that you tune in to my next podcast, which will be about my surgery. 
Um, thank you for listening. And if you want to know a little more about me, um, you can go to my website. It is lmireland.com. And until then, God bless. And um, I will catch you on the next podcast.